95.5 KLOS. It's Matt Pinfield. I'm your guest host tonight on Jonesy's Jukebox. Actually, it's this afternoon. It's today, yeah. Yeah, but it feels, you know, it depends on where you are. But, hey, Jonesy, it's so great to be here with you. Um, I've been a fan of Jonesy's forever since I was a young kid. And I think sometimes those of you who listen to Jonesy's Jukebox, like I have been listening to for so long here on KLOS, um, you sometimes forget the amazing things that Steve has done in his incredible history. I mean, being voted one of the 100 greatest guitarists in Rolling Stone magazine of all time. Barely. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean, barely? You mean, 97. 97. I just squeezed in the door. I'm glad they got you in there, though. Yeah, I mean, it's better than being 101. That's it, absolutely. No, no. So, Steve, talk to me about growing up in Shepherd's Bush. Now, that part of London is where, of course, the Who came from as well. Uh, what was it like there as a kid for you? Oh, it was delightful. I mean, for rock and for you, for rock and roll, what kind of stuff were you listening to when you first became a rock and roll fan? Um, well, <clears throat> when I was uh, when I first really realized what music was, you know, I was about nine, ten. Remember seeing uh, Help around one of my friends' house on a black and white TV, and they were just running down the street, and you know, their fans chasing them, and that kind of you know, that kind of stuck in my head that that was kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know about, did I want to, I guess I did want to be that too, even at an early age, you know. Um, <clears throat> but, um, you know, I I did a book and I kind of mentioned a bunch of the real points of what, what happened, being in Shepherd's Bush and hearing Purple Haze for the first time. I was like, transfixed on it and kept telling this older guy play it again play it again play it again you know what I mean it was one of the best things I'd ever heard and you know I was already hip at this point to music because you know there was all the 60s there was a show called Ready Steady Go where you'd see music and uh, you'd have like bands like the Hollies and Kinks The Who all, all bands, Stones too. Were on yeah, there. yeah, yeah, and so I was totally drawn in. But also, I was a big fan of Tamala Motown too. When I was twelve, I was a skinhead, and what we used to listen to was early reggae, like um, Prince Buster and Blue Beat. I think it was called in the day, and uh, and Tamala Motown, and uh, that was a big part of it. But then after that. After being 12, 13, 14 is when I started getting more into rock stuff. That's when, that's when I changed. And what were those artists that brought you to that? Was it people like David Bowie and Roxy Music? Yeah. And T-Rex and things Glam. Like that? Glam yeah. stuff was a, a, big, a big thing. You know, so I want to ask you too, Steve. Um, one of the favorite things that people like to talk about or ask about is, you know, when you're a kid growing up at Shepherd's Bush, Maybe you don't have money for instruments and you really want to play. Yeah. There's the legendary stories about, you know, going to the Hammersmith Odeon, which was right around there. I think after Bowie's first farewell show with the Spiders from Mars, when he was uh, saying that he was retiring, didn't tell the rest of the band about it. Yeah. But you were there that night. And uh, tell me about the whole thing with the instruments uh, and the nicking of the instruments. Um, because that story is just one of my favorites. Well, I was definitely um, a kleptomaniac, you know. <laughs> I loved, I loved lifting stuff and, uh, you know, and I started getting into music. So I f figured, 
good stuff to lift is musical equipment. Yeah. You know, because at this point I wanted to start a band, you know, and I figured the the closest thing I could do to be close to music was to steal band's equipment. Yeah, and I also heard you, did you steal some of Bob Marley's equipment too from Bob Marley and the Welsh, or is that just a rumor? It's a mix. That, that is kind of a... Kind of true, but not true. The true story is, as I remember it, it was a band who was opening up for Bob Marley, a reggae band. I have no idea what the name of the band was, but I remember taking uh, the Twin Reverb from them, which was the one I ended up using. Yeah, you used it on Nevermind the Bollocks, right? It's, it's completely on Nevermind the Bollocks, most of it, yeah. But I don't know who the band was, but thank you anyway, whoever you Yeah. Are. Now, speaking of that, now I know that years later you actually offered to give the Bowie or pay for it to buy equipment back for him. And he did he tell you, he said, don't worry about it, Steve? It was something like that? I've been lucky. A lot of them say, don't worry about it, Steve. <laughs> but uh, I, I did actually give some money back to Woody Woodmansey, the, 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 uh, the drummer in The Spiders from Mars. He came on, he came on my show last year or year before. At KLOS, and um, I made amends to him on the air live. I didn't. What I wasn't gonna. I saved it till it was live. Yeah. He didn't have it. He didn't know, and uh, I gave him like three hundred bucks. That was a really cool thing to do. Well, it was only a couple of symbols. It was not like uh, a so lot of stuff for, what was for, the, from him. Yeah. But didn't you like literally wait until they closed the Hammersmith Odeon, the venue down, and stayed in there like? Well, like, yeah, like you said, it was two nights. This was the end. This was the end. Like you said, he didn't tell anyone. That he didn't tell everyone. And uh, after the first night, they left all the equipment up because they were going to play again the next night. And I was at the show, and I knew Hammersmith Odeon. Then it was called Hammersmith Odeon. Now I think it's called the Apollo. I knew it like the back of my hand. That place, you know. I always used to sneak in there and hang about up in the rafters. Who did you used to go see when you were sneaking in? People like The Who? and who Oh, man, I saw so many bands there. I saw Queen, Mott the Hoople, um, Van Morrison. I saw tons of bands. Yeah. Because it was close, you know, only only around the corner. It's great that you could get in there, that you could always find a way to sneak in. Never paid a penny to get in there. Which is great. Well, back then it was a lot easier. <laughs> There was no cameras. There's no cameras, and there's no, like, you know, like, you things just, reading the barcode like they are now. You today. could just ajar a door, and it was, boom, you're in. It was great. It was really amazing. It was a good time. So, can't, you can't do that now as much. No, nah, you can't at all. Anyway, I just want to say it's Matt Pinfield. I'm here. Um, I'm guest hosting, turning the tables on Steve Jones today, uh, Jonesy's Jukebox. So happy to be here with you. I'm a huge fan of the show. I first did the show with you, I think, years, quite a few years ago. I was a guest when you had the kind of the jukebox jury, Jonesy's yeah. jukebox thing going on. I was on there with, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was Calvin Harris who became a big pop star. At that point, nobody knew who he was. He's my neighbor now, that guy. He is? He, he's got this massive house. I'm like, who's that guy who lives in that? And yes. I, and I found out it was him. I'm like, oh, doing all right. Yeah, and it was also Garland from uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm was also on there with us. So it was really, it was a cool day. He was on there? Yeah. It was oh. all the same day that I was on with you there when you had me on as a guest. It was yeah. really cool. And then that was a good concept. It was a great concept. Jonesy's jukebox jewelry. Yeah. Yeah. Was cool. It was taken from an old show in, in England. In yeah. England. Yeah. Where they, on a TV show where they'd have four people 
and they were playing new songs and you kind of critique it. Yeah. And, and you know, it, you, you helped, you weren't the artist or band who everybody was going to trash that day because it would really affect the way the record would sell, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we did, it was good. I mean, we didn't, a lot of the time, we just started talking about other stuff. We didn't even talk about songs we were playing. But. Yeah, it was it was very, very cool. Yeah. Now, I know you love Roxy Music, which is the next uh, band that we're going to hear. We're going to hear a track from their fifth album, Siren. Did you see Roxy when you were a kid? Yeah. What? I saw them at uh, uh, the Rainbow in Finsbury Park. I saw them there. Where else did I see them? I, saw, I know I saw them a couple of times. But the real thing for me was seeing, when I was in a... From my stealing, I got put in jail. It was a, it was called a young man. It was a ball store. It was a place called Banstead Hall, and uh, I got put in for a year and a half when I was like fifteen or whatever it was, sixteen. I don't know. It's all a blur. And and it was in the country, and uh, I I loved it there. It was great. <laughs> you could. Uh, it was like country. You know, we'd plant cauliflower yeah and uh and and it was it was it wasn't a prison it was like it was it was like a holiday camp to me yeah anyway they let us see top of the pops on a on a thursday everyone 20 young men would watch it and of course virginia plane came on and that and that was another big turning point i'm like who are these guys this is fantastic it was really different at the time with Brian Ferry and Brian Eno and everything that was going on. All was of them. Yeah. Andy Mackay, yeah, Phil Manzanaric. All great. The only, the only uh, kind of dud was the bass player. He went through <laughs> he went through about four bass players. <laughs> they did on every one of those you know albums. When, you know when bands don't commit to yeah. the look like the rest of them? Yeah. He was just a hippie. Yeah. Like, And he wanted to stay that way, so he would barely put any, yeah. keep his hair long. Yeah. He'd still have flares on. Yeah. And put like something that kind of connected him to the rest of the band anyway. Yeah. And Would... bass players, all the same. <laughs> so funny. It's great. All right. It's Jonesy's Jukebox. This is Roxy Music. Love is the Drug, 95.5 KLOS. <laughs> hey, it's Matt Pittfield. I'm the guest host today here on Jonesy's Jukebox. And honored to be here, by the way. So happy to be here with Steve. Steve Jones who I've been a huge fan of since I was a young kid and, you know, discovered punk rock with uh, the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. And I remember, you know, it's a funny story because you usually don't find out about bands from your parents because, especially back then, but I was sitting at a breakfast table and my mother goes, I heard about this outrageous band from England that, you know, got in trouble and insulted some reporters or whatever. And I said, I gotta find that record. I gotta find that band right now. So I literally went and I used to, work under the table and hitchhike and go up to this one record store that had the singles of Anarchy in the UK, God Save the Queen, and Pretty Vacant. And that was my introduction to you guys, and I fell in love with it, of course, and your guitar sound and guitar tone, which was so great, you know? Now, speaking of that whole outrageous situation back then, Steve, the Bill Grundy incident um, yeah. on that show. Now, Bill Grundy, for people listening, um, is kind of the equivalent of a Dr. Phil show or Oprah or something of that nature, like or one of the late-night shows. But it was on, I think it was on in the afternoon, wasn't it? Something like that, Steve? It was like, it was uh, around six o'clock where everyone watches this show and they're eating their... They're eating their dinner. Bangers and mash, yeah. And I think it's pretty amazing because, well, what happened? You want to tell us a story? I mean, Susie Sue of Susie and the Banshees was part of the people that used to follow you around. They were called the Bromley Contingent, but they yeah. were huge fans of yours and, and they were your friends. Uh, and before she formed for Susie and the Banshees, but... 
the host, Bill Grundy, he was drunk on the air, wasn't he? He had had a few cocktails, and then he was kind of hitting on the girls. Wasn't that what happened? He was just being being obnoxious. Yeah, obnoxious. That's that was the that was what a lot of uh, people in power back then were all pretty much the same. They didn't really care about you, and they wasn't. He just saw us as like some some louts, you know, which in a way he, he was right, but. The fact that uh, that you know they could get away with murder, these guys, and he and he was drunk. He was he was a classic drunk. I'm sure he was drunk every night, you know. And I had a couple of bottles of Blue Nun, yeah, that delicious wine. <laughs> yeah. That's right, and I love it because you were you you weren't afraid. You were the one who basically cursed him out on the air, which is beautiful. Yeah, me, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Actually, though, they didn't miss, not really miss, but. Sid did, I mean, John did say a, um, I can't say the word. A four-letter word. When you go to the bathroom. Yeah. Number two. Yeah. He said number two. Yeah. And, and, and he the... tried to provoke him to say more. Randy, yeah. But it kind of, actually, there is a, I actually did say an effing spent it. Yeah. That no one got. If yeah. you listen back to it, that was yeah. way before I really tore into him, but. But it was great when you did that, and that's that's rock and roll history because that was the thing that outraged England and the UK. And do you remember, Steve, the the front of the newspapers over there in the UK that were telling that people were so offended they were kicking their TV sets in? Yeah, who knows if that was true? <laughs> Whether it was true, that was a great who story. Knows? Great publicity. <laughs> yeah, you know. But we we had no idea that it, we didn't go in there knowing that that was going to happen. You yeah. know, we had no clue because normally you have a button. When you start swearing and it doesn't yeah. go out live, yeah, you know, who knows? Who yeah. knows if it was a someone was manipulating it? I have no idea. But it, I'll tell you one thing: the good, the good and bad side to that is we was an instant overnight household name. But also the bad side to it, it all changed from there, and we fell apart because of that, you know, and it became very. You know, it was uh, it was great prior to that. Yeah. You know, everyone was creative. Other kids, fans were creative. Then it all become just like uh, a uniform, a leather jacket, a spiky hair, and it kind of lost. It kind of it was kind of over. Yeah, and it was hard for you too because you were going on that tour over there with bands like The Clash and Buzzcocks and. But you couldn't play anywhere because people were so offended by that TV uh, experience that you would go to their town and they would try to stop you from yeah. playing. Yeah. And you're also the first artist ever in the UK charts to have a number one record that they wouldn't mention on the air. It was blacked out. Like, it literally, when they were on TV or on the radio, they couldn't say the name of God Save the Queen. Yeah, that was pretty good. It was very cool. So you wrote this incredible book called Lonely Boy, which is a, a great song from the great rock and roll swindle that you wrote. And uh, you named it your book after that track. And you did a memoir. What was that experience like writing that book? Because it's a, I just want to tell people, if you're a fan of Steve's and you're a fan of rock and roll or a fan of punk rock, you've got to read his book. His book is incredible. And if you, they were real fans, they'd already have it. Yeah. <laughs> but it's very quiet over here. <laughs> yeah, you know? But... Um, so, Steve, tell me about the experience of writing that book, because it was, I mean, you got re you got really honest about everything that's happened, and you've had such an incredible career, and, you know, tell me about, how long did it take you to write Lonely Book? Well, I did it with a, a ghostwriter, and uh, he was from England, a guy called Ben Thompson, and he, we, first of all, we started out 
you got to understand, I, I never went to school, so I wasn't good. Even though I did some uh, uh, later on in life, <clears throat> I started having a tutor help me to read and write. But I, prior, prior to doing my book, I mean, it took me so... When it was finished and I had to read it, it took me so long to read it because I hate reading. Yeah. Uh, but I had to read it to make sure it was in check. And, of course... I sh should have done what I should have done a few months before because there were some things I wanted to change because it wasn't right, but I just didn't want to read it. And uh, so it, it was basically done where he came over here for a few days and we got together, spoke for a few few hours with his tape recorder, and then we would Skype like three times a week for an hour or so a day. For a, That yeah. went on for about a month. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the book came out great, so I, I suggest any any rock fan out there who's listening should definitely check it out. Go online and order that book. I did. I did the um, audio for it too. You did. You which know. You can listen to it with my lovely voice. Unaudible. You know, when yeah. I wrote my my memoir, uh, I I did not do the voice because I was so busy, and I, the guy who does like the James Patterson books doing it, and it was weird. So people were some people were a little upset that I didn't actually read it. I'm if, glad you read your book. If I, I would have known. What it took to read to do that, yeah, audio. I wouldn't have done it. You would have had somebody else do it. It was a pain. It took me sixty hours to finish it because you're trying to keep your voice also like in the same range as you change to day to day, right? To record. I, I was good for about half hour. Then I started to cook. They go back, and I'd get all angry because I yeah. couldn't. It was a nightmare. But but yes, I am glad that I didn't quit and 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 did it. Um, I'm really happy that you did. Absolutely. Now, we should also um, talk about some of the things that you did. After the Pistols, the Professionals were a band that I loved. And if, for the people that had heard songs like Silly Thing and Lonely Boy on the great rock and roll swindle, that was the direction that you guys were going in, you and Paul Cook. I, I love those records, like Just Another Dream and, and uh, One, The Magnificent. Two, One, two, three. We had like four singles, I think. Yeah, and you had a great album cover. The album cover was a guy getting punched in the face, and it was called I Didn't See It Coming. Yeah. Which was a great name for You should see it. The artwork's amazing. But um, what was that experience like? Because all of a sudden, you were now, it was the, just the two of you. Was, yeah. was it more relaxed? Was it, a, was it more fun to do? Or? Well, at this point, I started getting into heroin, and uh, it wasn't a good time for me. Even though we wrote some great songs and stuff, and I love Cookie, I was just not. I was just not present. Not present at all. And was a dark, dark point. Yeah. You know, I'd love to say it was. Oh, it was great doing that album, but it it really wasn't. Yeah. You know. Well, then of course you know you did the solo records when you came over to the states here uh, in '87. Uh, you did the album Mercy, and it was cool because some of the songs were used. Like there was a song using Miami Vice. There was that movie Something Wild uh, that uh, that uh, Jonathan Demi yeah. used it in one of the songs in with with or without you with yeah yeah which was really cool. So what was how was the and, experience? And the Sid and Nancy Pleasure yeah. and Pain that was on there. Yeah, which was cool. Uh, I like I like doing that album. It was so different than anything else because I moved to California. California was like another planet, you know. It was like going to Mars, and so I just. It was a good point for me. I got, I gotten, I gotten sober, you know. And it was just uh, everyone's like, "Oh, I'd, why'd you do that with the long hair and all that?" You know, you just got to do what you want to do. You know, you shouldn't be pigeonholed. I agree. You didn't because have to... some fans want you to stay the same. 
that's like the kiss of death. So that's why, you know, it was just another progression. It was fun. Well, we're going to play a track from the Raconteur's latest album right now. You're listening to Jonesy's Jukebox. I'm your guest host, Matt Pinfield, here today at the Viper Room with Steve Jones. So excited to be with you. And uh, this is the Raconteur's. It's called Sunday Driver, 95.5 KLOS. Super Live Stage, it's Jonesy's Jukebox. is what we just heard and uh, now I'm here from their incredible third album which is known as Sheer Heart Attack I'm Matt Pinfield here as the guest host interviewing the one and only Jonesy I'm doing it on Jonesy's Jukebox what an honor it is to be here today at the Viper Room doing it on 95.5 KLOS love that song it's my favorite Queen album Sheer Heart Attack and you know I saw them as a kid uh, my older brother took me in 1976 I saw them in a the theater for Night at the Opera in New York City at the Beacon and the show absolutely blew me away. And you saw them even before that, Steve. You saw them with Martha Hoople, right? I saw them a couple of times, yeah. And how, what did you think of those shows? I thought they were a They were great. They were, you know, there's some bands like The Who and that are just three-piece musical. Yeah. Well, even though Freddie played the piano sometimes, but a three-piece that could make such a big sound. Yeah. You know, and him as a front man, I mean, they had it all going on. It was, they were great. One of my favorite bands. Yeah, same here. You know, years later, I, Brian May had hired me to write the liner notes in this uh, eight-CD box set called The Crown Jewels, which was such an honor, to be honest with you. When I when he, I said to him that I was at that show in 76, he goes, you don't look old enough. To, I go, no, believe me, I am. I was like 12, but it was an incredible show to yeah. see. Now, Steve, getting back to your stuff, the second I've solo... I've got to do one thing. Oh, that's right. You I've were... got to do one thing. I've got... Yes. Okay, yeah. I'll give anyone 10 bucks if they tell me what song that movie was in. Anybody in the audience know? It was in a movie. Huh? No, no one knows it. That's why, that's why I offered 10 bucks, because I knew no one would get it. <laughs> what movie was it from? Now you're going to tell everybody. It was... A, oh, you're on your Shazam? <laughs> what is yeah, yeah, a bit late, honey. <laughs> But you're right. So which movie? The Third Man. The Third Man. With right. Orson Welles and uh, it was an old like 40s, 50s movie. Yeah. You gotta like, love did Orson Welles. Did you Shazam? No, she didn't understand she, didn't, she, she gets the $10. Steve Jones is giving you $10. How great is that? Give her $10 now. I'm going I'm to give you $20. i am going to give it to her right after. Don't forget to come grab me. I'll do that for Steve. I'll give, I'll give I'll it I'll cover now. for you. Are you going to give it to her right now? Yeah, otherwise I'm going to look stupid. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. There you go. He's a man of his word. Look at that. Steve Jones, and you got $10 right there. We're in the Viper Room on the Subaru Live stage. Josie, the second solo album you did was really cool, Fire and Gasoline. You did it a year later in 88, and uh, Ian Asbury, the cult, a mutual friend of yours and mine, uh, actually co-produced that record, and Axl Rose was on it um, as well. Tell me about the making of the second record. Uh, we were actually talking about that last week when the cult was on the show. Ian's, you know, credited co-producing the album, and uh, it, that, that was another good time. Um, it's, I actually listened to it, uh, a week ago and thought the music's great. Yeah. It was 
kind of rocking. Yeah. Like, and it was, you know, kind of down and dirty. But I hate my vocal on it. I don't like my vocal. I'm trying too hard to be a rock guy. And it just ain't me. You know, I hate to say that. But I was doing it because that was kind of what was happening. And it was, you know, I just wanted to get laid. Yeah. You know? <laughs> you once said on this show, on Chelsea's Jukebox, you were talking about those, those periods of the Sunset Strip and how crazy they were. And you said, I didn't have girlfriends, I took prisoners. Or something like that. Do you remember saying that? Something like that. <laughs> You're still the greatest, I'm telling you. Know, you know, but yeah. I wasn't the only one. And it was uh, that's what was happening back then. It was yeah. just, uh, I was all buffed out. I was off drugs and... I was uh, I was horny. Yeah, you know. You get that way, you do. But I'm I'm just glad that you made. I, I love the cover of Suffragette City, and you did your old great B side of God Save the Queen. Did you no wrong on there? And Axl Rose was on the record too, yeah. which is really cool. Yeah. So if you haven't heard that, you should definitely uh, check that out. It's really cool. Now you've got fans out here who were asking about Neurotic Outsiders. Um, one of our questions here from Miguel was. Uh, well, will there be a reunion? And then I think we should explain. Neurotic Outsiders was the band that uh, you started with Duff McKagan and Matt Sorum, uh, who was the second drummer in Guns N' Roses. And on the this cult. stage, yeah. Right on the stage. Isn't this where you rehearsed? And, and well, then, that's where we played every Monday night for about three months. And was. then John Taylor, of course, of Duran yeah. Duran, who's great. So what's the question? Neurotic they want to know, outsiders. will there ever be a reunion for of Neurotic band? Outsiders? Neurotics. It's possible. It's a possibility. You never know. You never yeah. know. Wouldn't that be great? Now, you, you know, no one, no one cares. Well, you played on the stage in 99 um, with, with Neurotic Outsiders. You guys did like a reunion show or something like that? It's been a while ago. That's what I was, I was told. Cause, uh, well, Who told you that? I don't know. It was one of my friends. He was like, I saw Neurotic Outsiders back in 99. So well, maybe, we start... I know it was 95 when you started, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, 99, I don't know. I yeah. don't think I think it was all over at '96. Yeah, just one year. Because then everyone, you know, we the Guns N' Roses was gonna go back on the road. John was gonna play with Duran Duran. I think it kind of was real short-lived. Yeah. You know, with the Sex Pistols did a our uh, Your reunion off tour, right? tour in '96, where we where we actually did a hundred shows, and halfway through it, we had a break for three weeks, and then I would carry on doing. Neurotic Outsiders. I'd go to Europe, play some shows there, come back. I was I was beat, man. Yeah, you must have been tired. I was beat, but then it kind of just uh, ended. I think after that. Yeah, but we. I'm going to ask you about your acting career too, because I've seen you in great things from going back and seeing the great rock and roll swindle when that first came out, and you're in there uh, with Paul Cook and even Sting's in one scene with you guys. Uh, yeah. What was that like? With I have a quick question for you. Was Sting? as confident as he is today when he was a young guy then? Because that was like really... Well, that was when he was still kind of a punk. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think I was there today. The when It was with Cookie, right? Yeah. In, in the back of the car. Yes. And they were trying to get hold of him. Yeah. Sting and someone else. Yes. Uh, yeah, I don't think I was there. But I've met Sting uh, a few times. He's Good a, guy, right? Yeah, absolutely. Of course. I mean, he, yeah. he kind of he, yeah. he, even he admitted it. They were kind of they were musicians, but kind of saw getting in on the punk scene because that's what was happening. Right, exactly. But he, he really, that ain't his. There's none of their, that that their thing really. But, yeah, you know. 
And they went on to do a bunch of other stuff, of course, and changed direction after the first couple of albums. They, 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 were, they were a good band, please. Yeah. I know they get a lot of stick. Yeah. But they, Great you know. live band, too. Yeah. I saw those early shows. I, I saw When they were touring in a station wagon on the East Coast, I saw them for $2. $2 to see the police at this place called the Walnut Street Theater in Philadelphia. We drove down there, a bunch of kids. Who was in yeah. the station wagon? Uh, the, the, the guy, they were. They, they were, were actually yeah. driving in the station wagon the first time they toured, yeah, which they, was pretty they, amazing. They paid their duties. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Steve, what about you? So we talked about that. Now, the movie that a lot of punk fans love is, uh, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Yeah. And you did that with Diane Lane, the actress. Tell me about that experience. Was that what you consider to be one of your really first acting experiences? Yeah, but again, I was a mess. You know, I, I, was, I was in England, like, this was like professionals' time. This was just after the professionals' time. Or in the, we were still together, and this opportunity come up to do this movie with Lou Adler, who was the director, and they wanted to, a band. There was a few bands, but one of the band was me, Paul Simonon, Paul Cook, and the actor... Ray Winston, and that was the band, and we were going to be in this movie. And I was in London, and we met Lou Adler in a, in a fancy hotel on Hyde Park, and I'm like, okay, yeah, let's go and do this movie. I was still a junkie, you know, yeah. and we did it in Vancouver, and we got there, and I had absolutely the worst time I've ever had physically trying to get off drugs. I was drunk all the time. I, I couldn't deal with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. I was also doing this stuff called methadone. I was a complete mess and I ba barely remem remember yeah. any of it. Well, the, the acting, I have no idea yeah. what, what I did in it. Well, I mean, I've seen I've seen it, but yeah. I don't remember it at the time. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you went through all that, but you're doing amazingly now, which I love. I've been sober 20, 29 years. Isn't that great? 29 years, Steve. And I see you out and about, so uh, we're both in that same place. Now, we're going to play a song that actually people don't realize Bananarama covered this song on this one movie soundtrack. Did you ever hear their version, the, the, the pop trio? Yeah. That, yeah I yeah. thought it was great what they did. It was cool because they took it in a totally different direction. I think Cookie had something to do with this as well. Yeah. This, this version. I think he co-produced yeah. it or something. I yeah. Don't know. Well, we're going to play the original from the Nevermind the Bollocks album. Great song called No Feelings. It's Matt Pinfield here with Steve Jones on Jonesy's Jukebox 95.5 KLOS. Yes, we're back. We're back. It's Matt Pinfield here with Steve Jones. Played Thin Lizzy right there, the toughest street in town, which is such a great song. And No Feelings before that from uh, your debut album. You know, I loved that you did this amazing Christmas single with Phil, the late great Phil in it, and uh, you were friends. Like it was Lizzie and, and uh, you and you and uh, Cookie were were good friends with them, and, and recorded this single called "A Merry Jingle." And you were originally called the Greedy Bastards, but they said you could they they wouldn't let you put that on the record. On the in sleeve. England, bastard is a bad word. Yeah, so but for some you... reason it's okay here. Right. So, they... <laughs> right. so. But that single was so great. That version of imagine taking the best of the Sex Pistols with that Thin Lizzy double lead groove and doing "We Wish You a Merry Christmas." I dig it out every year. It's so good. Tell me about your relationship with Phil, because so many people love Phil Lynott. A lot of people discovered him later on after he had passed away. Was he a great guy? Well, we had a we had a good time together. You know, again, we started dabbling with the naughty drugs. Yeah. 
you know, the, so it, be, it became that kind of relationship. Yeah. You and know. It, that's why Phil died so young back in 86 in January. It was yeah. a shame. He never, he never used to do that earlier on. It, it was like a later thing, that the, the hard drugs. And uh, it was a shame. He was a great songwriter, but I think he just, uh, you know, got caught up in it, like, yeah. like a lot of us did yeah. with the drugs. And uh, Let's go back to your acting stuff right now, because I love... You were on Roseanne in the uh, in the early '90s, which was very cool, and oh. Californication, which I loved as well. I've seen you in a bunch of great things. How great was he in that? Right, yeah. right. I loved it. Steve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Steve, you know what's cool? We were both guests on Portlandia because I was in one of those episodes too, which was yeah. very cool. And I, how did you like working on that show with, uh, well, with Fred I love and Carrie? Fred. Fred's a buddy, and uh, he, he's he's great. See, the thing is with me is I'm great as long as there ain't a lot of dialogue. You know, yeah. <laughs> and, he, and these got directors, they can't figure it out. What do you mean you don't want more words? All actors want as much as they can get, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand. I can't me memorize lines. Yeah. So, I mean, I started getting good on, on uh, California Cation because I was doing it for two seasons, and you get used to it. You know, your memory starts, whatever. It, I, I was getting good at it, but then... I didn't do anything for a while, and um, I get, you know, the phone rings, and I get offers to do do this stuff, and my first question is, is it a lot of dialogue? <laughs> I don't, honestly. But you're just being honest, right? I don't want to mess anyone around. Yeah. And that's my biggest fear, is being on the set, and you keep blundering your lines, and you're holding everyone up. But what I've come to understand, that a lot of big actors do that anyway. Yeah, you know they forget their lines and they just nine and then they do it and they and they're off. But I, I don't know; it's my own personal hang up. I don't really think I'm an actor. Well, we're glad that you do do some acting. What do you think, everybody? Right? Yeah. Isn't it great, Steve? Steve, I just want to say what an honor it was to sit here with you at the yeah. uh, Viper Room and, thanks, and thanks do for this. Coming, doing this. It was such a pleasure for me, Steve, being a fan of yours. You know, since I was a teen and. Just uh, watching it and, uh, and admiring everything that you've done, all the great interviews you've done right here on Jonesy's Jukebox mm. and KLOS, because I've listened to this show so many times. So this was an incredible experience. I got to say me. that next week we've got Daryl Hammond as yeah. the guest. That's cool. That'll be great. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Daryl Hammond will be the guest next week. That's great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's great. Steve, thanks so much for having me and letting me have you here today. Thank hey, you. Everybody, thanks for coming down to the Viper Room. So great to have you. Subaru live stage. Jonesy's jukebox. I'm Matt Pinto. Thanks so much for joining us. It's 955 KLOS.